Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name is Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Today we hear from the Sopranos and Boardwalk Empire scribe Terence Winter, plus exec producer Sherry Marsh and legendary global TV chief Chris Olbrecht about their upcoming post-World War II Japan set mob drama Tokyo Underworld. And from the team behind new Australian youth drama Eden, from the creators of Miss Fisher's Murder Mysteries and Skins. Award-winning writer Terence Winter is best known for his work on The Sopranos and as creator of Boardwalk Empire, two acclaimed HBO series that delve into the world of mobsters, the former in 1990s New Jersey and the latter during the Prohibition era of the 1920s. For his next project, Winter is again exploring the world of gangland mobs, but this time the action shifts to Japan in the aftermath of the Second World War. Based on the book by Robert Whiting, Tokyo Underground tells the true story of an Italian-American GI from the Bronx who relocated to the country in the aftermath of the Hiroshima bombing to become the undisputed king of the black market. For the series which is in early development, Winter has reunited with former HBO chief Chris Olbrecht, who's now running production company Legendary Global, and executive producer Sherry Marsh. They spoke to Michael Pickard about the project. Terence, people will know you from The Sopranos and, and Broadwalk Empire. Can you tell us a bit about um, this new project you're working on? The genesis actually was Sherry and I were looking for something to do together. And she said, hey, have you ever heard of the book Tokyo Underworld? I said, oh my God, I've been obsessed with this forever. And then we ended up uh, bringing Chris into the loop and he read it immediately and saw exactly what we saw. The story, uh, a lot of people don't even realize this just to set the backdrop, is that in the aftermath of World War II, specifically right after Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the U.S. began an occupation of Japan that lasted for six to seven years, where for the first time in history, a conquering army helped rebuild the city and country of their uh, defeated foe. Uh, so thousands of American soldiers were sent to Japan, none of whom had had any experience fighting in the Japanese theater of war. Douglas MacArthur, who was in charge of the occupation, was very careful to not send any soldiers that had an axe to grind against the Japanese. So it was all people who were new to the country. One of these people was a low-level wise guy, gangster from the Bronx, a young man named Nick Zapetti, who had a kind of a checkered background in, you know, stolen goods and that sort of stuff. Zapetti got into some trouble in the Bronx, needed to get out of town. So he thought, all right, what, what better way to get out of town than join the Marines? They'll send me somewhere far away like Pittsburgh. Well, Pittsburgh turned out to be Tokyo. And in 1946, right after the war, Zapetti ended up in Tokyo, which was basically rubble. One of the things he discovered very quickly was that because the U.S. was now occupying Japan, there were goods being shipped in every day. And there was also uh, a lot of uh, old goods from Japan that were taken over. Zapetti immediately, you know, being criminally minded, saw an opportunity to make a fortune in the black market. So this guy, who was this low-level criminal, found some like-minded soldiers and then teamed up with members of the Yakuza to essentially run the black market in Tokyo. Within a couple of years, this kid, basically, from the Bronx, was one of the wealthiest men in Japan. He ran the black market, was teamed up with the Yakuza, sold everything from cigarettes to razor blades to lighters and everything in between, also opened up the biggest chain of pizzeria restaurants in Japan that still exist to this day, also basically single-handedly invented professional wrestling with a Japanese sumo wrestler named Rikozadon, and went on to basically become 
one of the most successful, wealthy gangsters in Japanese history. Never went back to the United States. Most amazing thing about this story for me is it's true. It's really all in my sweet spot. It's got gangsters, both American and Japanese, uh, low-level crime, and history, which I love. And I incorporated so much on Boardwalk Empire. So it's really an opportunity to, to tell a story, I think, that most people don't even know about. And it's a really fresh look at gangsters, both from the Yakuza, the mafia in New York and everything in between. Sure, Sherry, why was this something that um, jumped out to you when Terry maybe first mentioned it or, or you'd seen the book as well? What was it about this property, I guess, this IP that sort of you thought could make a big impact in the market? I've known Terry for a long time. And when he says we've wanted to work together for a long time. And when I found the book, the book has been in and out of people's hands. Lots of people tried to do an adaptation. And when I found it, you know, I called him and it was golden. It was perfect. For me, you know, after my experience with Vikings and Poe's, I love to tell stories that have some global import and also stories that you just haven't seen. And I also like working with people that I respect and that I like, right? So Terry certainly is that. And Chris and I go back a long way. And it just felt like it was a perfect combination, a perfect storm. And I think that also that this book has the ability to, to show both a Japanese perspective and a U.S. perspective and really be global. And, and it's fun. And it, it's got some heart and humor. And it's true. And Chris, the project came to you. You obviously know both of these people very well. Um, you know, what was it about working with them? And, and you, you just recently launched Legendary Global, your partnership with Legendary. Why was this kind of a, a good project to, to jump off on? Well, uh, when we launched Legendary Global, I thought, okay, we need to make a statement, show that we can be in business with A-list talent. Anthemopoulos, who's my partner in Legendary Global, who wasn't part of it yet, was at CAA, said, hey, Terry Winter has this project about the Roosevelt's. I said, oh my God, I'd love to be in business with Terry. It sounds like a great project. Called Terry up. We had lunch, a little pasta, a little wine. And uh, he said, you know, I've got this other book. He said, yeah, the Roosevelt thing is good. Um, he said, but I got this other book. Here's the story. I mean, he said, I said, well, it sounds like a great story. I says, I'm in business with Sherry Marshall. And I said, oh my God, I know Sherry forever. Obviously, a lot of respect and affection for her and seeing how well she's done with everything. And I thought, well, this is, this is, and it has elements for me, having been involved in several World War II projects, having been involved in several Terry Winter projects, Sopranos, Boardwalk Empire. It seemed like a perfect opportunity. And I read the book and I thought, I mean, if this story wasn't true, you couldn't make it up. No one would believe it. And yet, and I, it has, it has the elements of things that I think work often, which is history, which is interesting and, and has some, you know, real gravitas to it. But at the same time, the characters in it are young. The characters in it are all sort of, you know, making it out of their, their wits and their, uh, you know, their energies. And I think that's something that is relevant and that audiences of all ages can relate to. You know, it's something other people have done, strive to do, or are hoping to do. And so also Legendary Global being a global enterprise uh, to have a story that, you know, took place mostly in, you know, Japan, but having a real U.S. centric piece to it. I saw an opportunity to have something that really fit our brand uh, with an A-list writer, a, a fantastic, successful producer in Sherry, who I trusted. So it just, just was kismet. You know, this just get once in a while, you get lucky. I remember correctly, I Chris and I had lunch on Friday and literally within 48 hours, you called me, who had already read the book by Sunday afternoon and said, I'm in. And I think, I don't even know if I had a chance to have told Sherry we were meeting for lunch. <laughs> like, I saw Chris, he read the book, he loves it, he wants, he wants to join us in this. So it was really... I, as you said, one of those projects that just came together really easily, all of us saw immediately what it could be. And again, this is, uh, you know, the book's been around for a while and people have tried to crack it. Uh, I think people have tried to crack it as a feature. You know, the, I think what, what Sherry saw initially was that this story,
story is too big to be contained in a two-hour format. This is something that is, that is ongoing, and it's just such a big sweeping canvas. And you know, for me, the beauty of doing a series is that you can dig down so deep into characters, uh, you know, over the course of, of of many, God willing, many episodes that you just couldn't possibly do in a two-hour feature. It's always too surfacey. So you really can get inside the heads of other people in these stories. And again, uh, you know, as Chris just said, it really is the story of, of rebuilding and rebirth. When you think about too, and how it's just astounding when you think about what Japan looked like in 1946, just 30 years later, it was, you know, that's nothing. You say that's that's 1990 from today's perspective. That was yesterday. In 30 years, Japan went from essentially rubble to one of the most powerful economies in the world and one of us, our, our main allies. So it's really an incredible story about, uh, you know, rebuilding hope. It's got, you know, comedy, it's got action, it's got violence, it's got heart. And so many, it's really has checked off every box that I look for, not only as a writer, but as a viewer. I guess a few people have had a stab at adapting the book. I mean, what has been your approach, you know, when, you, when you're when you a writer and, and you have a book in front of you, what's your approach generally to adaptation and how have you found the key to unlock what you hope will be, a, you know, a long-running series? Well, generally, you know, it all starts with character uh, and the character of Nick Zipetti was just so perfect in terms of telling the story from his point of view. Uh, it's somebody that I can relate to, you know, in a few ways. I mean, well, not, not in the horrible gangster ways, but the ambition, the young, new, smart Alec New York guy, you know, he, Zipetti was from Brooklyn. I, I grew up in Brooklyn. I just sort of understood that you know, that whole idea of, of getting in trouble and going somewhere else and trying to rebuild your life and, you know, just sort of looking at, at the world as a, you know, kind of as your oyster, as, a, as this big opportunity and sort of transplanting that New York wise guy attitude into a whole new place and culture. Uh, so that was fun. I mean, Zipetti just sort of became the catalyst for the rest of the story. And then it's really a question of building the world around him. And the world around him in this book was absolutely fascinating. The various characters he met, not only the other soldiers, but the the higher up people in the in the various military ranks, every, range all the way up to Douglas MacArthur, and then the the Yakuza characters are incredible. These are the you know he, he understands gangster culture, but this is a whole other level. Uh, and again, it's just a uh, just just such an embarrassment of riches in terms of that canvas. But it all starts with with that guy. I think also timing is everything. And I think that when people tried to do an adaptation of this book as a movie, it just you know, it didn't do it justice. I think the story was big than that. And I think also there's an appetite for more international fare that, you know, maybe wasn't around earlier. Mm -hmm. So it certainly is a perfect storm and timing is right. We're, we you know, really couldn't be more excited about it. What has been kind of the reaction like and, and how are you kind of building up the team, you know, in terms of perhaps um, investors or broadcast partners? How, how are you kind of developing the project at the moment? I think this is the story of two cultures that are coming together and kind of discovering each other at the same time as some of these characters are, you know, Terry used the word rebirth. Uh, you know, some of them are just a, a, actually, you know, coming into formation, you know, young people on uh, both on the Japanese and the U.S. side. So what we wanted to do, what we want to do is make sure that this isn't, you know, told from just a Western point of view, even though you see three Westerners here. And it's been a, a big part of our work in the beginning to investigate what the opportunities might be to have partners, equity partners, broadcast partners in Japan, in 
in Asia, people that are invested in building out, you know, their own businesses in that region, because we, you know, we truly see it as something that sits across, you know, all sides of the story. And I think one of the things that's great about what Terry wants to do here is, because he's all about authenticity in everything that he does, is, you know, really find access to the inner workings of that group of people in Japan and, and, and you know, who they were then. And whenever you have something that really gets to the heart of the human experience, no matter what language it is or what subtitle is at the bottom of the screen, I think you're going to have audiences uh, that are going to really respond to it because it's relatable. And uh, ultimately, I think that's the mark of success in television is when the audience comes for something that's quote unquote, you know, sexy. And I don't mean that in a sexual, just mean it's a, like, you know, the mafia or here, you know, the World War II aspect of it. But what they then see in it is something that they can relate to it themselves. And I think they'll see that in characters here on, on both sides. And we want to make sure it's authentic. And because of that reason, we've been able to be in contact with people who have you know heard about the project. And we want to make sure that we finance this in the right way. We're not, you know, we're not opposed to a giant deal from a big streamer. But at the same time, you know, we want to investigate all possibilities so that the best version of this can be the one that gets shot and gets seen on a platform. And we want to make sure it gets seen around the world. Because again, it's not just an American story. It's not just a Japanese story. It's a world story. It's been a crazy year. And I mean, how do you just all reflect on the year we've had and, and how the, the industry, I guess, particularly in the US is kind of recovering after, you know, months of, of shutdowns and, and slowly getting back onto new regulations? You know, my life probably has changed the least of anybody I know in that I'm stuck at home writing. You know, that said, I mean, yeah, it's we're all getting through it and zooming our way to keep things moving as much as possible. But it's it's tough. And particularly when you don't have a, a national standard of behavior and then people are questioning basic science and math, it's, it's a little frustrating. But uh, what are you what are your uh, takes on it, Sherry and Chris? Well, you know, I agree with you, and I think we can spend a lot of time about all the negative impact that, you know, the reality of COVID as well as the political situation. But what's interesting, though, is the constant appetite for programming. And I think there's really, if there was ever a sign that people, you know, respond and love good television, if you will, it's now. And, I, you know, slowly people are coming back, albeit carefully. And I think that every production probably has at least 30% more more, whether it's in the UK or here, that you have to spend for COVID restrictions. I think that if people would have good behavior and realize there really is a pandemic, and if we could get that under control, you know, it would be better. But it's been a tough year. But I do think that in spite of all of it, we certainly hear loud and clear that people want more programming. You know, it's just a question of how do you do that safely? And how do you do that, you know, in light of people getting positive COVID responses, right? Absolutely. Yeah, that, no, that demand has been insatiable. And Chris, I mean, um, you know, how do you just see maybe, you know, things playing out, you know, the streamers are so dominant these days. How do you see the, the broadcast cable network, you know, streaming landscape going forward? Yeah, look, a lot of changes. I mean, uh, you know, legendary, across legendary, we've been in production on several TV series, uh, went and finished a movie, went and finished the season of Carnival Row, went, started and finished uh, a horror film in uh, Eastern Europe, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and, you know, have a lot of things that have been picked up and ready. We, we see a lot of the, the buyers pushing things that were supposed to be in 21 back into 22 and 23. Obviously, uh, you know, as much as streamers might have gotten the quote unquote COVID bump or whatever with regard to people's 
staying home and signing up new subscribers. I don't think that's money they're counting on forever. You know, we continue to see vertical integration and consolidation and, and haves and have nots in the entertainment business. So that's, you know, challenging. But I think what that also means is that people need to be open to new partnerships, new paths to finance and, you know, produce things. And I think that's an opportunity for us, the three of us and the association we have on this project, because as, as Sherry said, there's, you know, an appetite for great product, albeit I think in a world that is going to be increasingly competitive as the landscape gets not smaller in terms of the number of shows th that people may want, but just kind of compressed and, you know, backed up on the, uh, on the conveyor belt. Yeah, I was able to sell um, or set up two projects during this time and, you know, just received two major books to review. I mean, I, people who know me that are not in the business say, how are you so busy? And it's kind of funny because you're working in a bubble. You don't really know what the future is going to be in terms of production. And But I, I do, you know, I, I do think that you have to move forward. And, and I think all of us, certainly our group is positive and open about, you know, new ways to carve a path forward and do things a little differently. But, you know, we all share a snobbery, if you will, about material and doing things right. Terence Winter, Sherry Marsh and Chris Oldbrecht speaking with Michael Pickard. From the creators of Miss Fisher's Murder Mysteries and Skins, Eden is a co-production from Every Cloud Productions and Balloon Entertainment for Australian streamer Stan. Set in exotic Byron Bay, the upcoming drama is about the disappearance of a young woman which triggers a devastating chain of events that expose the dark hidden heart of the community. Every Cloud co-founders Deb Cox and Fiona Eager, exec producer Brian Elsie, writer Vanessa Gazy and Louise Pedersen, chief executive of distributor All3 Media International, spoke to Michael Pickard about the series. Deborah from Every Cloud Productions, do you want to just give us a, a bit of an intro to the series? Eden is an eight one-hour series about the dark underside of paradise, and it revolves around the disappearance of a young woman after a night of partying in a wildly beautiful coastal town that was founded in the hippie movement of the 1970s on that ethos, but has now become an international destination for the wealthy and the worried well. And the central mystery of Hedwig's fate and her best friend's determination to discover the truth triggers the unravelling of other secrets as we move backwards and forwards in time, mapping the weeks before and after that night and the ways in which our ensemble of characters have all played a role in her demise. Our partnership began with Balloon and Brian Elsley about five years ago. We started to develop a, a short-form project called Deadlock, which we hoped would be a proof concept for a larger series. And uh, Fiona and I had, had a reputation for producers of primetime drama that we were interested in in facilitating younger voices and we'd shot a number of series in Byron Bay which is a town a little like Eden and um, and we decided that in order to tap into those stories of regional youth in a party town where the youth grow up too fast and too free it was important that we find a way to collaborate to develop stories that felt authentic but also felt ambitious and sophisticated and when we looked around us internationally the example of that was Skins the UK series that Brian had done and uh, we had nothing like that in Australia. It really stood out in the landscape. And so we we dug into that further and found out that Brian had developed it with his son. It was that generational collaboration, which made a lot of sense to us. And we, we were really keen to do something like that in Australia. So it was obvious we just had to lure Brian out to Australia <laughs> to work with us. And luckily for us, his wife is Australian and he was coming to Australia every second Christmas. So we got our timing right and we asked him to come out to not Melbourne or Sydney, but just by 
Byron Bay, which I don't think he'd ever been to before, and work with a select group, half a dozen young writers and directors from around Australia, and also a brains trust of local youth, which is Brian's secret ingredient for developing youthful stories. And um, we were told to feed them a lot of cake. I think we gave them sushi because it was Byron Bay. But it was a great experience for Fiona and I to learn from Brian's mentoring techniques, and we held a workshop. But all the time we developed that very short series, which was pretty top heavy in terms of development because of what we wanted to achieve. It was only five by 12 minutes. Brian was uh, very convinced that there was a bigger story there, that it was a unique location and we had something unique to say internationally and it should be something bigger. So once we pushed that project out the door and we could use that project as a a little bit of a prototype narratively for um, a core event, the mystery of which was solved by jumping backwards and forwards in time. So we had the kind of approach that we wanted in the world we wanted and we just kept talking to Brian about how we could do something bigger and more ambitious and that came Eden. Brian can you um, tell us a bit about your view of that story you know what was it about <laughs> that initial project that caught your eye and, and how did you find developing it into, into something bigger? Well the thing that caught my eye initially was uh, business class tickets to Byron Bay for me <laughs> and my entire family um, which was an irresistible proposition. I'd met Fee and uh, Deb and I think there was instant chemistry between the two companies even though they were been producing different work different kinds of work you know every cloud have a tremendous reputation in the area of mystery drama and uh, balloon is essentially a new writing company but nevertheless we're both very independent uh, small companies trying to do distinctive work and i think we just found that we got along incredibly well and saw the world from the same place and had the same view of television drama production over quite a few years and it seemed like fun and the, the fun of co-producing with a, a company from a different country and trying to get along and understand how things are done differently and what the advantages and different ways of working are, that was just tremendously interesting to us. So, you know, we just got down and started pushing the ideas backwards and forwards like any other mm-hmm. television drama series. And, and you're working with lots of new writers and, and new talent to sort of develop ideas. With. We'll bring Vanessa in, but tell us a bit about how you brought her onto the project and um, a bit about, you know, what she brings in terms of perspective or, or style to the series? Well, I think that um, Vanessa came along after a massive troll of young emerging television drama and film uh, makers in Australia. I think we pretty much read everyone out there and um, Vanessa was the best. So we politely asked her if she would come along and just think about joining in with the, the conception of the show. And very quickly, Vanessa put her stamp on it, started directed along the line that she felt reflected her view of the world and and the view of young Australians. And that's always what we're trying to do, which is to find a talented writer and then just kind of set them and do everything we can to enable that vision and bring it it to pass. And working with Vanessa has also been tremendous fun. Vanessa, thank you for joining us. Tell us a bit about how you got obviously got involved in in the first place, but also how you then developed the story to Eden as as we're going to see it. Well, you know, it's been a really exciting, lovely process for me. Um, over the last, I don't know how long, a year, two years or something. I got an email one day from an old um, teacher of mine from film school who now works at Every Cloud. And he said, hey, would you be interested in submitting some a writing something? And we're not going to tell you what it is. but And I said, sure, yes. Uh, so yeah, that began this kind of process of sending work and, you know, saying, can you send more? Can you send something else? Can you send your films? And now can you come and meet, well, go, go to Melbourne and meet um, Deb and Fee in Every Cloud and then find 
finally meet Brian. <laughs> and um, yeah, instantly we just, you know, I just, I think I just clicked with all of the producers and became very excited by the prospect of what they were offering to me, which felt like something incredibly freeing, actually, creatively. The brief seemed to be, <laughs> let's write something fresh and new in your voice. Let's come up with characters and put them together in unusual, you know, situations and let's evolve a story from character. And so that's what, that's how Brian and I worked for, you know, this very sort of intense little period of just, you know, sending ideas and, and talking character and building these characters and building these connections until the web started to sort of connect to each other. And it became a community. Um, it became a town and yeah, it was a, it was a really lovely sort of character up way to work for me. They've sort of set the, the scene for the show. What can you tell us about how we follow the characters through the story? I, I gather there's multiple perspectives and, and, you know, various themes going on. What can you just tell us about what's in store? I mean, I guess as a writer, I'm preoccupied always by this idea of sort of the internal world, the inter the sort of in the lives of human beings versus the external presentation of self into the world. And so the way that the series is designed is to kind of uh, lean into that through POV. So each episode takes a POV of a different character who we kind of think is one thing to the world or presents in a certain way. And as the series progresses, we uh, dig into these characters. We begin to see the secrets that they keep both from the world and from themselves. And in doing so, we begin to unravel the mystery of what happened to um, a young woman that goes missing at the very beginning of the series. And each of these characters touches her life in some way. And, and as a series, progresses we both reveal the truth about these people and this town and what really happened to this young woman so fiona um tell us a bit about um the development from you know you've pieced together balloon with every cloud and you've got the writer attached tell us a bit about how you uh, developed the show from there and took it out to town to, to maybe pitch to uh stand as deb alluded to we had done a short form piece called deadlock and um this actually became a really important tool in our in our way to sell the series because it was like a proof of concept even though what Vanessa develops is a very Eden's very different from that piece it was the world and it was who we were speaking to in the audience so I think that was very important when we were approaching Stan about sort of a proof of concept but the other thing that the development phase did was also meant we could cement our working relationship with Balloon and that was incredibly important because you know doing a production together from different parts of the world you know you really need a solid relationship and partnership so it's a very ambitious project it's around two million Australian per episode so we had to get a decent sized budget to make it work you know we're very fortunate in Australia that we do have subsidy as well our government contributes a certain amount to the budget between 30 to 40 percent but it's very important then to have you know your domestic commissioner which in our case was Stan and then all three and all three of us board on spectrum we've been in discussion with Nick about this project us trying to hook him in and him trying to get a handle on it but I think in ultimately it was the creative team it was having Brian attached and it was the quality of the scripts that really make a broadcaster commit. Um, the other thing that we've been incredibly fortunate is to have all three who, you know, Louise had been backing this project right from the early short form drama, which was a total risk for everyone. But all three are real collaborators and they got behind the project. They were very supportive of both Balloon and Every Cloud. And, you know, I think having them there
there to go to Nick to be able to say we support this project and we are equally invested in finding the rest of the budget is also just an incredible uh, support for producers. And Louise, tell us a bit more then about, um, I guess, the changing role of the distributor. It's quite a varied role these days. You know, how were you involved um, on this particular project and, and um, you know, what was it about, I guess, working with this team and, and then bringing the other pieces together that um, meant that you were, you know, obviously interested in, in taking part? I mean, I guess sort of separately, we've had a long-term relationship with Brian because we distributed skins back in the day uh, with, with company pictures uh, made. Obviously, Brian was involved in that. Um, and also we have a sort of long-term relationship with, with B and Deb as well. Uh, Miss Fisher, a uh, sort of first look deal with them too. So I suppose the first thing was there were two partners involved who we had worked with over a long period of time, absolutely trust their creative judgment and a project that we just thought would really fly internationally. I, I think there's a sort of shortage of material in that kind of YA plus um, sort of bracket that is available outside of Netflix and Amazon. And, you know, the sort of prospect of having a show by such a strong team of creatives and, and such a strong writer that we could sell, you know, hopefully position with Stan. So that was a great partnership that we had with Stan on sort of setting it up there. But then we could sort of take out around the world, ideally find uh, a big US co-producer, which we were lucky enough to do uh, with Spectrum, and then also have the rest of the world uh, to sell as well. Because, you know, there, there is, I think, a, a, a difficulty financing this type of show um, out of the sort of traditional UK landscape that we're used to. So we just kind of had to think a little bit about how to how to get it financed and, and sort of create a bit of a new model. The team behind upcoming Australian drama Eden, speaking to Michael Picard. That's all for this episode. There'll be more from the podcast tomorrow. But in the meantime, stay safe and up to date with all the latest international TV industry news by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening.